We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute uh, minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Okay, Adam, so a bit of a catch-up conversation with you on what I know you've been working hard researching all about the Ukraine and the historical connection with the Ukrainian far right and the CIA. So that's something that really intrigued me because I'd, I'd known about this uh, Azov Battalion far-right Ukrainian thing from 2014. But then the, the period of history I didn't know so much about was like the Second World War year. And reading about that and Ukrainian nationalism and this genocide of the Poles that took place in that time period, and then to see the CIA jumping in and grabbing some of those guys for operations behind the Iron Curtain immediately after, uh, kind of Operation Paperclip style, that was fascinating to think that there is this connection that runs from then. So um, where have you been uh, going with, with your research into this? Well, uh, there was initially, there was one video that I did, which was basically uh, centering on Operation Aerodynamic, which was a CIA operation that was to exploit anti-Soviet Ukrainian resistance groups in Western Europe for intelligence purposes. And it involved one individual by the name of uh, Mikola Lebed, who, by the way, was a, a Ukrainian nationalist and guerrilla fighter who was actually tried for murder of the Polish interior minister, Borisam uh, Pierki, in 1934. He was sentenced to death, but his sentence got commuted to life imprisonment. But uh, uh, good luck, fortune happened upon Lebed because in 1939, Germany invaded Poland and they recruited him to uh, continue his spying operations on Soviets, in which he was a part of the, um, uh, I want to say it's the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, which was an ultra-nationalist politicalist a group created in, um, in Vienna, in which they were accused of war crimes, killing Polish Jews uh, pre-invasion of Germany. So the German Nazis, as a Nazi Germany intelligence arm, basically saw uh, some value in Mikola Lebed. And his profile was basically well known in Eastern Europe. And along with Stephen Banderas, who the media is now reporting uh, to an extent about his connections with neo-Nazis, nobody's talking about, of course, the more nefarious individual, Mikola Lebed. I don't know and if Stepan Bandera is the more public face of it, right? Because he's the right. one that the media reports being on the papers. And he was in jail when the big massacres happened, although he was technically the head of the organization right. that did him. So the bed was like acting chief. So I don't know if Ukrainian nationalists today march around with the bed posters or not. I haven't seen that reported, uh, but 
Stefan Bandera is just one half of a fraction of a degree away from that. Yes. You know, what's funny, too, is because I think Labed's connections with the CIA basically shield him from public scrutiny because uh, after World War II, uh, the CIA recruited him as uh, to continue um, his spy rings in Eastern Europe and inside the United States and even gave him residency in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where he died in 1998. Um, and the CIA knew his background. In fact, they were warned by... Uh, um, the State Department about his connect their connections with this individual who killed, you know, is responsible for the tens of thousands of Polish Jews in in Poland, and they the CIA basically were worried about uh, what's the CIA doing with individuals like this. So they classified his information for decades, and it wasn't until I'd say 1992 where. Um, Two individuals uh, basically wrote a report regarding uh, Mikol Lebed and the CIA's uh, uh, co co uh, commiserating with this individual and conducting operations for decades, even throughout the height of the Cold War, which is where his value was most uh, imperative and most valuable. Um, but in in the uh, in his classified documents, the, the, the I forget their names, the, the two individuals wrote a report called Nazi Hunters. Uh, it was in 2009 where they um, they got this, the, they went to the National Art, well, they went to the CIA, filed a Freedom of Information request regarding uh, the CIA's connection to Mikola Labette. And they, uh, at that time, got, I think, the largest cachet of released files from the CIA. It was like a million point three files where they talk about the CIA's entire history with the um, Mikol Lebed, Stephen Banderas, and the uh, Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. And it, this program was so big that it involved other governments in say Germany, France, uh, Italy, so the, he had he had spy rings all throughout Eastern Europe that were operating inside Soviet influential groups that were operating all throughout Europe. And because the United States uh, were worried about the communist backlash of the 1950s and 60s, they they invited Mikola Bed to live inside the United States to continue operations inside the United States. So even though Here's a guy who has a, a you know, a nefarious profile. He's a murderer. Yet the CIA is actually dealing with this individual. So between the years of 1952 and 1974, the CIA even funded his, his, his research center called um, Prolog, which he was the deputy chairman until 1974. And he was on the board of the Ukrainian Society of Foreign Studies in Munich and Toronto up until his death until 1998. And it was a huge revelation, you know, that goes back. Because I know that there have been reports recently that shows, oh, the CIA is involved with Ukrainian ultranationalists from 2014 onwards. But no, it goes much further than that. And I would be, uh, I would submit to you that probably in the future, with the release of more files and documents from the National Archives, say in 
20, 30 years from now, hopefully sooner, will show just how invested the American intelligence apparatus, State Department, were involved with Ukraine ultranationalists. Okay, so two things. Do you think we might see a continuous relationship basically from the 1940s to the present day? Yes, very much and, so. I, th- and I think that's going to be the case. And I'm wondering what they were getting up to, because what I've read about Lebed, he was involved in intelligence gathering and spying, running spy, spy rings behind the Iron Curtain in Ukraine. Um, but I'm wondering also if it went into sabotage missions and that kind of thing. I don't know. Right. And I, and I think that's a great question, right? Because who knows what kind of false flag attacks were happening all throughout those, what, uh, 30 years that he worked for the CIA. I, I, I couldn't tell you because... Because you must have a dedicated core of Ukrainian nationalists who are totally opposed to the Soviet Union, ready and waiting to be weaponized all throughout the Cold War. And I, I, I wonder what happened with them. What, what were they doing? What were they up to? Right. And I wonder at the same time, throughout th- this uh, uh, program that uh, involved with the CIA, you have to wonder whether they uh, involved other organizations that were anti-Soviet at the time as well. Uh, other intelligence agencies from Germany, whether it's going to be the, uh, the Stasi state or uh, whether it's going to be from uh, the I- Italian Secret Service, uh, I couldn't tell you. I, I did, uh, we don't know. I mean, that's really the best bet at this point is to uh, we well, can speculate. All day long. I think we know more like on this side of the Iron Curtain with um, with Italy, particularly this obviously famously for Gladio, Operation right. Gladio, um, where even before the war ended. The, uh, the U.S. was reconstituting the fascists to put them into government because essentially the United States re- repositions itself for a war with the Soviet Union prior to the end of the war with Germany. And they're putting fascists in, in positions of power. They created the Christian Democrat Party in Italy, um, had the mob whip up support for it, funded it, so essentially bought the election, and then had these stay-behind units, these gladio units, burying caches of weapons across the Italian countryside in case the Soviet, supposedly in case there was a communist takeover of Italy, either through the Soviet army rolling in or the communist party coming to power and there needing to be a civil war, as there was in Greece. Um, but then they got proactive, particularly in Italy, I think in other places too, certainly Greece, it was called sheepskin. Um, but in Italy, the files were particularly disclassified, showing that the, uh, the right-wing gladio units, the extreme right-wing units, were engaged in things like setting bombs off to kill Italians and point the blame, point the finger of blame to the Italian political left to demonize the left, to demonize the communists who were involved in their own assassinations uh, and to drive the Italian public to the right. So you see that kind of thing going on across um, across Europe. In You also have uh, Reinhard Galen, who's a, a German officer. I don't know if you call him a Nazi ideologically, but he certainly hired Nazis to infiltrate behind the Iron Curtain. So he was reconstituted in Germany. And then uh, one of the worst examples of a human being you could ever run into, Klaus Barbie, the out-and-out SS Nazi, who the butcher of Leon, who personally tortured people and sent children to Auschwitz. He's um, shuffled off down to Bolivia to teach the Bolivians how to torture dissidents and, and lives out his life down there until he's ultimately extradited back to France for, for his crimes. So uh, that was another uh, CIA job uh, down there. So you, you have this part of a wider program is interesting. Sure, yeah. To like, oh, wait, what goes on in the Ukraine? Yeah. I never really thought of that until, until recently. No, it's, a, it's a branch out effect, isn't it? Mm. I mean, as we go on, me and you, especially, uh, 
the last two weeks, uh, I'm almost shocked at how expansive this conflict is regarding past history. Um, and of course, you know, you also had the, um, what I just learned the other day about the 1948 general election uh, in Italy, which was uh, greatly influenced by the Cold War. Yeah, the, the CIA bought it basically. They bought yes. it. They created the Christian Democrats and just poured money in. And right. they, now their their argument would be well, the 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 Russians are pouring money into by the by the election for the communists, but the communists are very popular in Italy because they uh, because they they fought out they overthrown the fascists. Basically, they were the, the brave. The same as in Greece, right. and um, unlike in Greece, Italy didn't descend into a full scale civil war because of this, which. Right, because it was, an, uh, to speak on that, was I think one uh, CIA case officer came out, his name is Mark Wyatt, and he basically said that um, the CIA had tons of money that were delivered to like these uh, Italian politicians to uh, uh, for their campaign expenses, like posters and stuff mm. like that. And so they started using shortwave radio broadcasts and started publishing books that were anti-communist. And, uh, you know, we could probably start from like that period, like World War II forward to show just how invested the United States was regarding anti-Soviet dissidents and uh, their involvement in Ukraine. You know, because two weeks ago, who, who knew anything about Ukraine? And, you know, I, I said this to you before, uh, it's, it's, I am overwhelmed by the amount of propaganda that I'm seeing mm -hmm. from the legacy media here in the United States as well as abroad. And what I think is even more uh, worrying of sorts is that in the future, are we going to see not just the subjugation of dissent voices regarding Ukraine, Russia, will we see imprisonment of these people and maybe execution? Yeah, in well, it's interesting, isn't it? Just to round off that point, I think, Adam, and correct me if I'm wrong, that 1948 election was the first time, obviously it was the first time the CIA had done things that way because the CIA just emerges at that period. But the United States had overthrown governments in Latin America before then. So under like Taft's uh, presidency, uh, they overthrew the government in Nicaragua and Honduras. Um, but I don't think they'd done something quite that subtle before of buying an election, that kind of more soft power approach. And that's sure. the first example of it. And then it runs through to the Orange Revolution in 2004 and the Euromedan in, in 2014. That's that's like a continuation of that same pattern there. Well, we, oh, oh, I'm, I just mentioned this before when I was interviewed by uh, Addy Ads regarding Ukraine. They, uh, well, they, you know, you, know even, you could go back further than that, 1953, and the, when the United States was involved with the overthrow of Egyptian Prime Minister Mohammed Mossadegh. Yeah. Um, and they implemented the uh, Reza Pahlavi, the Shah of Iran. Yeah, it came out later. Through later, it wasn't known then, but it came out later through the uh, release of files and uh, that the uh, CIA was behind mm. the protest that forced the uh, oh yeah. yeah. So just then on to your point, I think it's it's very interesting to talk about the. So when COVID landed, Adam, I felt a bit wrong-footed. It's not exactly my specialty, you know, and I can't say a priori does a lockdown stop a virus or not and so i just wrote this little piece saying okay well you know there was always unintended consequences to these things there's always economic consequences you give power to a state you don't get it back and and so on and so forth and but it was very mild right so you, but the ukraine situation i felt better placed because i'm broadly familiar with the history 
you know, in, in, a, in a general sense, and the revolutions and so on, going back to the the first war of independence in 1917. Um, for, okay, I'll, I'll tart up my knowledge a bit and put a presentation out there. And what's uh, doubly disturbing, even more so, because I think like everyone can get wrong-footed by like, how do you deal with a virus? But the, the responses to people saying what to me seem like very obvious things, like NATO has a substantial hand in creating this conflict. Like the war didn't start a month ago, it started in 2014. These, and I will see responses like that's Russian propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yes. like, it's yes. like McCarthy won. Right? It's... <laughs> well, it's much more expansive than McCarthyism. I think Joe McCarthy would be jealous of what's going on today. We're not seeing it just here in the United States. We're seeing it abroad. And it's global almost. Uh, McDonald's basically not serving in, in Russia or uh, Netflix not being serviced. I mean, who's calling the shots here? Is it basically the United States or is it coming from, you know, NATO partners or the coalition? Yeah, I think I it's mean, a combination of all those things. There are examples of, I mean, there's different levels of people all of a sudden. So if you're a Russian in Russia, you can go jump, basically. You, you, that, you're you a legitimate target, essentially, for the financial institutions. You can be cut off. Okay, but I also see this counter-narrative war. We shouldn't be unkind to Russians outside of Russia, because it's not their fault. So you shouldn't not serve a Russian who comes into your shop or whatever. Okay, um, And also, you see little bits here and there of Russians, that there's a guy in the orchestra who um, he wouldn't denounce Putin, so he got booted. Um, the Welsh orchestra are not playing Tchaikovsky this year now that's incredible yeah that's a new thing and there was a case of a doctor refusing to serve uh, refusing to treat russians in germany um so it's interesting right because so to get blackboard in the west you have to a be russian and b refuse to denounce putin okay well i have one of those qualifications not because i like vladimir putin because i'm not jumping through the hoops that people set up of what what we've all got to denounce this week you know (laughs) and it's just no i'm not doing that so i already have 50 percent of the qualifications to be excommunicated yeah so wh- where does this end right this is a real like spiral, I, just had, I, I i just made a video regarding i think the the, the new muslims are now the russians mm. uh regarding uh the, the new right russians. or the left yes exactly right that's a great point because we're seeing that right now aren't we uh, the jump from neoconservatives of the public to the democrats uh and and they're pro-war all of them Mm. You take a look at viral media, and I've never seen such vitriol, such a want to not just in scale in proxy war, but global I mean, U.S. intervention in Russia. I can't believe it. And one such person who's actually calling for an escalation in the conflict regarding the United States is Michael McFaul. Um, for those who don't know, Michael McFaul was basically uh, an advocate for the Iraq war. And... He basically, uh, I even retweeted him regarding that. Uh, and he later, by the way, he actually deleted the tweet where he said that Putin is worse than Hitler. I can't believe, I just incredible. Uh, he's actually a diplomat, and he was he actually he was the former uh, U.S. ambassador to Russia for two years. I forgot the years, two thousand ten or something like that. But he actually um, is one of the. He, one of the most out, out or, uh, outspoken advocates for U.S. intervention in the conflict. And, and people are basically responding. He gets like thousands of responses for each tweet. And basically, a lot of those people are basically either 
Americans who are pro-Ukrainian, but they're all on the left. And those who are on the right are basically calling for a de-escalation of war. But I think that's that's also disingenuous because I also think that the Republicans are basically not wanting the Russian war, but I think they are definitely pushing right. forward yeah. with China. So it gives me a more regard for Taoist philosophy, I think, Adam, the idea that everything becomes its opposite. The yin reaching Doesn't its climax it? recedes in favor of yang, reaching yeah. its climax. So the left being this anti-war movement recede and become in favor of I think Keith Oberman's a big Oh yes. Russia phobic, isn't he? You know, yes. now if you, if you, let's go back 20 years. If I told you that Keith Oban would be the major war hawk in the country, you wouldn't believe it, <laughs> he, would you? It sounds crazy. He was actually a pro, he was a progressive. For oh, a yeah, I used, to, I, used to, I used to listen to him in the Bush years. Yeah. Oh my good. God. Yeah. Hmm. It, but, but the past, you know, it's, I, I think this is an evolution. I, I hate to say an evolution, but it's a de evolution of previous thoughts and why. What makes one change from a progressive to basically a neocon overnight? Well, it's not overnight. It took years. I think it basically arrived when Obama was president. Obama came under the pretense of hope and change. He came from, uh, he's an African-American. And so he resonated with the working class. And what did he do? Oh, my goodness. Well, according to some Bush affiliates and White House officials, Obama was people were under the Bush administration were jealous of Obama for the one reason alone is that he got unauthorized access for the NSA to conduct warrantless wiretapping without a warrant. So that means that the the Bush White House officials like David Addington and John Yu, who wrote the legislation about bypassing uh, the FISA wars and about the Department of Justice. Well, that didn't come really into effect until Obama. And Obama allowed, like the NSA and the CIA, to conduct not just warrantless white top on Americans, but unauthorized drone strikes on Americans. One of them being Anwar al-Awlaki and his son. And yes, you could say, oh, these are terrorists. Yeah, well, all right. They are still American. They're afforded the Geneva Conventions. And they were assassinated on the behest of the Obama administration. So... I started seeing these members of the left suddenly grow into the very thing that they spoke out against and hated under the Bush administration, and now metastasized into what we're seeing in the Biden administration. Now they became the very entity in terms of thought regarding geopolitics that they hated just 10 years prior. And I wonder, you know, that's what fascinates me about psychology. Was it basically propaganda? Was it basically denial that they can't just admit that we're on the losing side too, just like the Republicans, that these people are not looking out for our best interests? Or basically, is it willful ignorance that they don't want to care, they don't want to hear the truth, that they'd rather live in a lie and think they're on the right side? What do you think? I think perhaps everyone has these kind of violent impulses that manifests in desire for war and they need mm. an avenue that is appropriate to that individual to bring them out. So one thing I observe is that it's quite acceptable to be racist against Russians. Okay. Like you can say, like it, I've heard multiple comments about how Russians don't have our values. They don't have the same sense of the sanctity of 
the individual, of life, of uh, life is kind of cheap in Russia. Russians don't get traumatized by violence in the same way because they're used to living in such awful, abysmal conditions and uh, through like the Stalinist years and then through the chaos of the 90s. And I'm not an anti-racist. I don't care. I Maybe that's all true, right? But I'm just observing that the same kind of people who would find this completely unacceptable <laughs> to say about any other group. Now, like you can pour all your inner suppressed racism out onto a group and they're Russians. The way the right did it with Muslims in the noughties and the left so disapproved of. Now the left have their people they can project racist attitudes on, point of finger and say, they are so very different to us. They're like the Japanese in the Second World War or something. They're, they're completely not like, they, just, they don't value life. They probably don't love their children, you know? <laughs> um, and right. that, that's, that's really an interesting, an interesting thing to observe. And the other thing I'm trying to wrap my head around, Adam, is the contrived nature of morality, the morality of groups, okay? And because you see people like all the Ukrainian flags go up on Facebook or whatever, and people having these outpourings of, of grief about what's happening there. And I think, I don't want to be too cynical. I think you could be cynical about some of it. Like there's, there are like influencers who recognize a Ukrainian flag is a good way to get eyeballs on their Twitch streams or whatever at the moment. I think it's a factor, but I think that's like a tiny percentage of it. I think a lot of people doing this very genuinely feel terrible about what's going on in the world with the Ukrainian situation. And I can look at that and go, yeah, but you've never said anything about Yemen, right? And that's being inflicted by a country that you're in. Like the United States or Britain, the United States is a major partner, but the Britain also supplying weapons there. And you don't have a lot of power to do that, but if everyone who's like waving a yellow and blue flag around over the past couple of weeks had written to their local politician and said, I will not vote for you again unless you make waves about ending the supply of weapons to, to Yemen, that might have actually done something to, to actually stop a, a genocidal conflict that's killed, what is it, 200,000? And I, I hear figures from Minpress News, there's like potentially 20 million people in Yemen who could face starvation. Yeah, well, so I, this I, is is three hundred seventy-seven thousand people are dead. Is it? Yeah. Um. So, so what is this like? And I was trying to think about this in terms of like cults, right? So you know the uh, the Westboro Baptist Church, the yes. the infamous "God Hates Fags" cult, oh, where yes. they would and they would picket uh, the funerals of homosexuals. They would picket the funerals of U.S. soldiers, and now I. I don't doubt there was a percentage of people with narcissistic personality disorders heading that thing up and just love the attention and love the idea that they could go out there and be as offensive as possible. But sure. I also don't doubt from listening to the younger generation who have like the members that have left the church, that they felt when doing that, that they were doing a moral thing, a loving thing. That was the most loving thing you could do. Because if you have a framework that says like this life is a little test and at the end of it, if you don't pass, you go to hell for all eternity, then it really doesn't matter how offensive or rude or in your face you are, or that you will turn up on like the most sacred and traumatic day of someone's life and just ruin it for them because they've got to get the message, you know, and they felt they were doing a moral thing. And then when the framework fell apart, because it was intellectually inconsistent in some way, and um, they stepped out of it, they, they could see how crazy that was and felt awful. Right. And I think some, it's something similar with, the state in this, that people are 
immersed in a kind of court of the state here. So they don't even know what's going on in Yemen because they never think to look outside major media sources. And they're certainly not talking about it. I think it's the case that MSNBC went a whole year without mentioning Yemen. Ah, is that right? Yeah, it wasn't mentioned in the um, presidential debates, I don't think. It's just, I don't think foreign policy wasn't. No, general. no, it wasn't. But, That's right. That, it wasn't. Um, Obama started it. Trump carried it on. He could have stopped it. If there's anything you really want to say, that's the worst thing Trump did. That would be it. And Biden promised to stop it and didn't. And this is like the split because the Saudis can't get their jets off the ground about American mechanics there. To, to The Saudis just doing the flying, basically. To everything else is like right. an American effort. Um, so it's, it's interesting that much like a cult, the state can direct people's moral energy. And I, I mean, by the, by the state, I mean the wider state media industrial complex. Can, direct, can tell people what to be upset about, and that's what they go for then. And they can tell people, don't look over here. You don't need to be upset about the, what do you say, 370,000 deaths in Yemen, and they won't be. They won't even know about it. Well, is it that they don't know about it? They don't care to know about it. They know what's going on, but they don't care. I think, I think you'd be surprised how many people are just totally oblivious. If Dave Smith was explaining the situation on the Rogan podcast a while ago, and Joe Rogan was a bit like, what, what is this? Yemen, what's going on? Like... I think people are, if you're not listening to anti-war media, I don't specifically mean anti-war radio, I mean just anti-war media in general, uh, there's a chance you just don't know about it. Or you think it's a, it's a faraway conflict. But no one's, no one's calling for the sanctioning of the Saudis. Yeah, right. I did, see, that this is why it's shocking to me, because I'm, I'm, my argument with some of these people is that, uh, well... You know, where's your current outrage about the largest humanitarian crisis taking place? And that's Yemen. And some of those people basically uh, say, well, well, that what you're committing is what about is. And I'm like, no, I mean, we you know, you show you're showing this uh, fervent display of solidarity with a country that, you know, you didn't even know about two weeks ago. And that's going to be true because hardly anyone heard about Ukraine two weeks ago. And yet, Yemen uh, basically is a larger crisis. I have Three million displaced, 377,000 dead, and the media blackout regarding this conflict is overwhelming. And because I don't watch TV, uh, it's shocking to me that um, hardly knows about what's going on. That's why I can't say uh, that what they're, what they're talking about regarding Ukraine or Yemen is basically what the TV is telling, because I don't watch TV. So if the if the news if you're saying that the news ain't reporting Yemen, and you're probably going to be right because when you look at you know what, uh, on viral media, you know ABC or or CNN they're not reporting what's going on. Why? Because the United States is directly involved. Indirectly, yeah, and, and anyway, if they, to the extent they are them, reporting it, that's the part they're not. Reporting. Right. That's it's, right. That's right. It's an entirely Western proxy war. Right. So right because it, and, and it's also what helps too on the, the side is that. The United States are directly involved. They're indirectly involved, but they are providing, uh, you know, military aid to Saudi Arabia, who, by the way, at the same time, this is something I brought up just recently. Um, at the same time, they're still covering up the fact about September 11, 2001. Yeah. At the same time. So there's a problem here, as well as the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So if you talk to somebody from that Ukraine left, type of men, that uh, person who's basically pro-Ukrainian from the left, and you mentioned Syria, Libya, which are democratic wars, and 
the current crisis in Yemen, you will get an almost blank stare or a denial and a refutation called you're committing whataboutism. I mean, that, that's amazing that people would say that what yeah. whataboutism thing. Well, yeah. the difference is it's the government that I know you're not really associated with your government, but it's the government whose domain you live inside is the one that is perpetuating this. Right, whilst at right. the same time pretending to care about people in, in, in Ukraine. In Ukraine, right. And the other one I've heard is race. Okay. And initially I was like very like uh, rolling my eyes at this. Oh, it's, it's just not, it's not the case of race. But then I did hear like <laughs> there are a stream of Western journalists who thought it was sensible to go on and say like, but these are white people who are white people, European yeah. white people. And I was, oh, okay. Yeah. I could see if I was brown, that might not feel great. I could, I could have done that. Right. Yeah. Right. Gosh. Well, they don't even try and hide. Like, um, so I, I do get that. And at the same time, I do think it is human nature that the closer a conflict gets to you in proximity right. and the more you can associate with the people, then the more you are going to have an emotional reaction to that. Like, I feel that I could probably, I would have a, cult, a closer cultural bond to Ukrainians than people in Yemen. Say, right. Right? And it doesn't mean that's a good or a bad thing. It's just something you have to be aware of. So you don't not care about people, you know, on the, on the, the Chinese saying that, the tears are strangers are but water. You, you just got to be aware of that tendency within yourself. Um, but like nobody cared. Nobody cared about the 14,000 dead white people in the Donbass over the past eight right, years. Right. right. So it's not really a race thing. It's a worthy and unworthy victim. It's who the state directs you to. And if, if the state declares that white people are unworthy victims, that they ain't worth a hoot, you know? <laughs> yeah. Wasn't it, wasn't that a one reporter who basically said, I have to choose my words carefully. And then he said, that, and uh, didn't yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, i wonder what was he going to say if he hadn't I, chosen them carefully i mean my god i and he came right out so this ain't iraq and afghanistan this I mean, is a place where you maybe expect them to act like this like... right but you know me, meanwhile the history suggests otherwise you know yeah. europe is behind some of the biggest wars in world history I, uh, I mean, they're not even trying to hide the fact that uh you know there's a bias going on here and i think it's obvious uh, but also, I think there's a nefarious issue to this, too, that they're covering up uh, the United States involvement and why they're in the Ukraine in the first place. And I think one such issue, basically, and I just did a video about this, too, about um, biological and chemical webs that may, may be operating in Ukraine. And the United States came out and said that's not true. And basically, all of a sudden, this became Russian disinformation. Well, last week... Uh, U.S. Ambassador um, uh, Newland, uh, Victoria Newland, who basically is, by the way, is married to uh, a co-signer of the Project New American Century, Rob McKagan, mm. uh, basically came out before the Senate subcommittee and basically said that the United States are working with the government of Ukraine regarding uh, chemical labs in Ukraine. So it's no longer a issue of disinformation or misinformation. It's about the truth. And, uh, you know, I tweeted this the other day about Aetius the Greek, this famous quote that's attributed to him, uh, the first casualty of war is the truth. And I think that's a, a great quote to use here and for every other war that's ever happened. And who knows, maybe, like I said, 20, 30 years ago, 20, 30 years from now, we'll just get how much information released uh, from the National Archives regarding just how much involvement we had with Eastern Europe regarding NATO countries from 1991 onward, and of course the Ukraine, and how much involvement there was in the revolutionary dignity in 2014 
which turned violent, which, which basically was the coup of Viktor Yushchenko. No, the media won't talk about that. I noticed that's one thing they won't ever talk about is the Revolution of Dignity protest. They'll talk about the Your Maiden ones. They'll talk about um, Orange Revolution to an extent, but they'll never talk about the Revolution of Dignity. I think I know why. And it basically will uncover the, uh, you know, the reports that are coming out now about CIA involvement in training neo-Nazi groups like Azov Battalion, which basically killed those policemen in the square yeah. in Kiev yeah. and, and then forced their ways into the capital where Yushchenko had to flee. There's an interesting documentary. I think there is ambiguity about who the shooters were, and I don't necessarily think it's just one group. There is an interesting documentary where uh, it, it features a scene of like right-wing nationalists walking out of a, a building with these long cases. Yeah, they're uh, musical instruments. Getting into fact. Well, is that is that the documentary that was uh, done by Oliver Stone? No, it's not. No, it's a one that was done specifically on who who were the shooters. I've got a reference for it. I'll stick it in the, Please, the notes me, for this. Like and, yeah. Mm. And Alva, have you seen the one? Have you seen the film by Oliver Stone yet? I have, yeah. It's banned here in the United States, I think. You can get all these things on Odyssey. Yeah, yeah. Like you can, you can watch Russia Today on Odyssey. Ironically, they've banned Russia Today at exactly the time Russia Today always goes to pieces, which is whenever Russia gets involved in an aggressive military action. Like suddenly Russia Today turns from this, like, I think far better than any Western I think corporate so. media source yeah. into like shilling for the for Putin basically. So they won't call it a war. They won't call it an invasion. There, it's a, a, a an operation or something. So Russia, Russia today, it's it should be called anywhere but Russia today, really, because it, it never provides accurate information <laughs> right. on Russia. But it's really good at everywhere else. <laughs> but yeah, this is a worrisome trend, as I noted before. That in the future, you know, who knows. Uh, when it comes to like maybe China or maybe Iran or maybe a conflict in the future where we'll see all dissenting voices against the war subjugated to silence. Yeah. And I, I think tedious as it is, you just have to keep plodding away and stepping out of the echo chamber where people are listening to this, I'm sure all agreed with roughly these positions beforehand or would say, yeah, yeah, of course, NATO are without ex exonerating Putin, NATO, of course, have a massive hand in, in starting this and all the rest. And it's all about a proxy war for the Ukraine. Uh, but we have to find some way to keep stretching across that divide to the people who are, you know, to be rude about it in the court. And um, yeah, you're going to meet a lot of hardcore members who were, but no, there was never any promise given to not expand NATO. And this is all Russian propaganda. And you've just got to kind of ignore that and, and carry on, I think, and just show a strong hand in terms of knowledge of the situation to make people think, oh, well, maybe maybe it's not all Russian propaganda then. The idea that Putin isn't just a crazy man who's done this entirely off his own volition with no uh, external forces pushing on him. I'll, uh, I'll mention this uh, story last night. You know, I had a, talking to a friend of mine named Nicole, a very dear friend, and she's an activist, a long time, even before I became involved with 9-11. She's a human rights an animal activist for decades, you know, 20, 25 years. And she basically tweeted, she texted me on the phone saying, um, I'm gonna go underground and, cause I've, I just about had it with the ignorance of people. And I can understand frustration. Oh yeah. But I, to I told her too, I said, look, it's not a rewarding position to share information that basically will call you as a Russian, uh, you know, a Russian agent or a shill and 
call you all nasty names. But I said, your voice matters more now and in the future than it did yesterday. And then mm. the reason why is because as we get you know closer to the future, the more voices that speak out against war yep. is going to be you know restricted. And I can understand your parent, you know, she's a parent, but um, you know, hopefully she'll continue to, you know, keep her Twitter active and whatnot. I said, you may think it's nothing now, but it's not. It's actually more valuable now yeah. than ever before. And it's not about the person that's calling you a Russian disinformation right. agent. It's about all the people that are witnessing that interaction and going, I, I don't know, actually, she doesn't seem like a Russian disinformation. You know, it's all it's about how right. you influence. Um and that, I think we can probably relate to that because probably there's been a time in your life when someone else has posted something online, which has given you the sense of having a bit more permission to speak or feeling like, oh yeah, I should say something too then. Or, you know, yes. it's, I'm not yeah. just isolated and alone here in these opinions. Uh, oh, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, this is one of the most valuable things you taught me over the uh, years that I've known you. Regarding 9-11, I was a very fervent activist and uh, on Facebook, and you've seen it, where I'm getting into, you know, vehement arguments, you know, this banal mm. arguments mm. with no players and no hijackers, and it served against my interest. But my interest is not staying with an echo chamber. My interest is reaching those people. You know, but how do you reach those people? Do you basically get into a, you know, a, a disparaging argument with them? No, you have to have a rational conversation, no matter the attitude of the other person you're reaching. You have to be consistent because that's the person you're trying to reach. And no matter what, it's almost like a sales pitch. You know, if you say, you know, F you to the person, they basically give up. That's hmm. it. You basically reverted that person back to his shell. And that's how they win. The, yeah, exactly. Right. You got it. You got it. Because they, they, they want to make you look like an angry, ranting idiot. Like, you can, bingo. If you, you yeah. can step out of that, then exactly right. actually, do you know what? Calling someone a Russian agent is not the most compelling argument in the world. Right. <laughs> so right. It kind of falls apart. Adam, we should conclude on that positive and happy. Yeah, please. Firing note. Yeah. And great. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk again soon. With yeah, sure. Richard, great talk. See Thanks you so much, Adam. Bye bye. Take care, pal.